And this is sort of my philosophy, my, is just say yes to things. Too many people don't do stuff because, oh, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? They'll figure it out. Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we study leadership and strategy in data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thanks so much for being here today. In this episode, we speak with Anne-Maria DeMars. Anne-Maria is an American technology executive, author, and judoka, which means she practices judo. She is the first American to win a gold medal at the World Judo Championships. I thought that was amazing. And I definitely um, came a bit later in our conversation. So not something that she led with. And Marie has been working or has worked in her career as a consultant, then as an academic. She got a PhD in applied statistics from the University of California. And as she tells us in the episode, her life took a tough turn at one point. And as a result, she decided to move into entrepreneurship. And for the past 30 years or 35 years, she's been a serial entrepreneur where she's had four companies over time with three still going. With one of them, she was part of a Startup Chile, which is obviously I'm from Chile. So it's an initiative that I was very interested to ask her about. The main company that she runs today is called Seven Generation Games, where they're using games to teach maths and English to Spanish speakers, Native Americans in the US. And now since the COVID pandemic has been growing like crazy and being taken up much, much more widely than that. So great, really great to see. Here is the discussion with Anne-Maria DeMars. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Anne-Maria. Anne-Maria, how are you doing? Thanks for making the time. I'm doing well. It's a little chaotic here. It's seven generation games, but good. It's good to have work. I bet it is a good time for your business. I definitely want to ask you more about that. And before we get stuck into that, I wanted to ask you about your origin story. How did you get started in the world of data in general? How did you get an interest and how did you end up where you are today? You know, it's funny. I was at the South Global Forum several years ago and there were a bunch of us around a table drinking, um, talking about this. And one of the guys who I think was a vice president of SAS says, you know, nobody was at their plan. Nobody, when they were a little kid in elementary school, to say, when I grow up, I want to be a data scientist or I want to be a statistician. He said, we all kind of like slipped on the banana peel and ended up there. I started programming when I was in high school using Fortran with punched cards. I am that old. And then I went to college, had a class in basic, had a couple classes in systems analysis, and got a job as an industrial engineer. And then computers were a thing that took up entire rooms, right? So it seemed like a mildly interesting thing, just like my statistics courses were a mildly interesting thing I, I thought I would never use. And then I married my boss's boss. And he was very cute. And I had to quit my nice. job because there's rules against like working anti-nepotism. You can't work for somebody who's above you in the corporation. Yeah. So I went to the University of California, Riverside to get a doctorate in applied statistics because it was down the street from my house. And, you know, all these other people, like, like my husband had got a job at War Aircraft. It was down the street. I listen to these young people, like my graduate students, and they've got these plans, and I'm going to finish my thesis, and then I'm going to do my dissertation, get my PhD, and after that, I plan on having my first child. And I planned on having my children when I went to the doctor, and he said, ma'am, you're pregnant. So that's how <laughs> I 
my children. And yeah, in fact, I was one of the reasons I was getting my PhD is I had actually, I was one of the very early women engineers working in front of a DRT, a Cathedral Ray 2, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. And I was pregnant. And I asked wow. the doctor, could this be damaging to the baby? Mm. And back then he said, well, we don't know. We don't know. It didn't seem like a good idea. And since I had that option, I, like I said, went and got a doctorate and uh, yeah, was a professor for years. And was doing statistical consulting on the side. And my husband was in an accident and he passed away. And I had these three little kids. They're all adults now, but it was, it was a rough go. And you make a lot more money you know, working for corporations at, than you do as a professor. So I left. And as some people who were mad at me for leaving the research realm said, sold out, sold my soul to the corporate, whatever. But you know what? I just paid my last college tuition payment for the fourth kid. Woohoo! Great. Well done. <laughs> Went and became a statistical consultant for years, started my first company, started my second company, and then about five years ago, decided to start a company that made educational software, and here we are. Fantastic. That is amazing. I love the way that you put it, that you went to do the your doctorate in statistics. You made it sound like because it was convenient, like it was something that you could it's do down true. the road, but it's a huge undertaking. <laughs> It's funny, random thing. I was also the world judo champion when I was younger. And when I go and I get introduced to things or read my Wikipedia page, I'm like, well, this is amazing. And you've got a PhD and you're world championships. But at the time, it's just like, okay, it's Thursday. I got to do these things. And now it's Friday and I got to do these things. And you do enough things and it adds up. And the next thing you know, you have four companies. Amazing. Four companies and four kids. Right. Well, right now there's only three companies because one of them... We split up and my partner took it. It was um, when I was Spirit Lake Consulting, my partner, he's doing well now, but he was diagnosed with cancer. And he said, if I only have five years to live, I want to travel, spend time with my family. So he took part of that and is running that. And then I started the joint group. And it's a good start because now it's almost 10 years later. He got married again, I think at age 64 after being single for 20 years and he's doing well. That's really great to hear. That's fantastic. And how did you pick what companies to start? Obviously, over time, how are you picking what to make into a company? And why did you choose to make them separate companies or different companies? Well, when I first started, I was a professor and I kept getting asked to do analyses for various things. The Gallup poll, which is a big organization here, was doing um, an analysis of substance abuse on the Indian, American Indian reservations. And I happened to be in that area. So they asked me if I'd subcontract. There were various people that I knew, just they'd been former students or other students when I was, they needed a statistician and I was the only one they knew. So I was getting these requests for contracts. And eventually it got to the point where I was doing so much consulting that I either, I was doing more than two full-time jobs, one as a consultant and one as a professor. So I had to quit one or the other and I decided to quit the one that paid the less money. So that's how my first consulting company came about. And then I just got to the point where I had more work than I could do. And mm -hmm. I had this, the friend, the one who eventually split up, split off Spirit Lake Consulting. So I, I'm not a marketer. Like I said, I will tell you exactly what I think about you and the horse you rode in on. 
So Eric uh, was the first person from the Spirit Lake Dakota Nation to earn a doctorate. Really brilliant guy. We worked together. He was president of college. So we, me and him, and then his sister, who at the time was the controller of the tribe, we formed a company together. So that nice. kind of grew out of my first one where it got bigger than I could do. And so mm-hmm. I brought in a couple of partners and then we hired people and it just grew. And our first product was selling slices of the internet. So places that didn't have internet access yet, we would go in and sell them CDs and train them how to use computers. So if you're in a rural area, and I know Australia has a lot of very remote areas, and you didn't have internet, we would train all your people, like you're in healthcare, right, that worked with, say, brittle diabetics. Here's what a brittle diabetic is. Here's what insulin does. And we would give them these CDs that had all this information. And so that was what we did. We went from nothing to a million dollars in 22 months. Um, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, when we founded the company, it was funny. The business license was $150. And I wrote the check because I was the only one of the three of us that had $150 in my bank account. And I said, we're going to make a million dollars. And April, who we had given the share of the company because we couldn't afford an accountant, and she was an accountant, she laughed. And we, yeah, within less than two years, it hit a million dollars in business. And that split up. April got a really great job offer as general manager of the casino. There's very strict laws about gambling, casinos, and that because of all the corruption problems there's been. So you cannot have an executive level job at a casino and own any bit of any other business. So she Mm -hmm. sold her share back to us. And then when Eric got cancer, he decided he wanted to scale back. So he took the training parts of it. We did professional development and I took the data analysis and research contracts. And so split that off and that became the Julia Group. That was a sole proprietorship and that's still around, still makes me money, pays for me to live by the beach, hire people. And at some point, I really got interested in making educational software, but that's kind of a shift and I needed more people to do it. And it's very expensive to get started. So I roped in two other people to be my co-founders. So we founded Seven Generation Games and the jewelry group had been around a while. We had money, we had contracts. So I didn't really want to have do that as a startup and have people get a share of the company because I had built it up already to be successful. So yeah, we incorporated, we did a seed round, we did some Kickstarters and here we are. And then I got invited to Santiago to be part of Startup Chile. So that was fabulous. So we went there, we opened up a company in Chile, Strongmind Studios, that now does educational games in Spanish. And we also had games in Spanish and English before. So now we've got a couple that are Spanish only. Unusual thing people might not know, there are as many Spanish speakers in the United States as there are in Chile, because there are about 16 million people here that speak Spanish. So we already have a product. But of course, going and coming from, from Chile, from Santiago, or where are you from? So I grew up in the north part of Chile in the desert. So in oh. the middle of the Atacama Desert. Um, oh, man, it's so beautiful. Oh, I love it. How nice is it, right? I went there for my 21st anniversary with my husband and I. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Just brown as far as the eye can see. But the sky is incredible. It's a wonderful place. It's not a desert like you have in other places where you have cactus, for example, or trees. Like we have, it's so dry. It's the driest desert in the world. And there's nothing, nothing but brown. But the landscapes are beautiful. Oh, yeah. We're to Valle de la Luna. And you see these things on Instagram and you go there and they're nothing like that. But we went to Atacama and it was exactly like that. It was so beautiful. 
Exactly. It is an amazing place. So my dad is in mining, which is why we live there. So oh. the north of Chile is a, a long strip of copper. Yeah, that's how we ended up there. That's incredible. So I wanted to ask you first about the company that eventually became the Julia Group. When you had those 22 months to a million dollars, how did you do that? Where did the scale come from? How was the growth of the company, product development? Can you tell us a little bit about those 22 months? Well, at the time, I would say less than half of the United States had internet access. And a lot of people I did, it was dial-up, AOL. So I got the idea that if you could bring this to places, bring the internet to places that didn't have internet, that they would pay for it. That a lot of people had computers, but they didn't have access to all of this information. So we went and we got a contract with several contracts. I mean, just one after the other, you know, 80,000 here and 100,000 there, and then a few hundred thousand, and then a few, another contract for a few hundred thousand. And each of them were for specific things. So first we went and said, there's a big problem with healthcare, people who have have disabilities and they're in these small towns and maybe it's a very rare disorder and they're the one person within 200 miles that has that and their family, their caregivers have no idea how to take care of them with this information. And maybe there's that one kid that has bernard Tuller syndrome and then there's another kid that has Creta Shaw syndrome and there's another kid that has this. So give us money. We will make this CD and training. We will go around to all of these sites and the special education teachers, the paraprofessionals, and we'll teach them in general, how to do a bed bath, how to move somebody from one bed to the next that's bedridden and so forth. And so we downloaded all these videos and everything. We went to, um, first we went to every site that we could find and said, can we have permission to download and share all of your information. Some of them said, sure, we're the American Diabetes Association. We want everybody to know it. Download whatever you want. And other people said that would be $1,000. So we took X. So yeah, that's how we started out. And we did one on, dis- on chronic illness. Then we did one on disability. Then we did another one on rights of parents. So we basically took the same product. And mm-hmm. once we had sort of a template for it, then swapped out content and expanded on that. And so we went from disability to illness, to special education, to teacher training, to management training. And then we also, at the same time, would often get into places where we were the only technical people they had ever met Mm -hmm. or that came into their little town. So if they needed a website built, if they needed data analyzed, if they just got a, wanted to apply for a grant and it said, we need a needs assessment, we need somebody to track the in increase or decrease in substance abuse or whatever, they would come to us because we were the only ones they knew. That's how we grew. That's fantastic. And did you have to travel for most of the work? Yes. Travel to Yeah. And it had to be mostly face-to-face, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, interesting. So you were spending a yeah, long period of time in a little rural areas of the country. How was that experience? Well, my husband used to tell me all the time, do you realize that people who live in those places save up all year so they can come here for two weeks? What are you doing? Can we live by the beach in Santa Monica and you're in the center of North Dakota and it's 40 below? Are you nuts? But I think that was one reason. I'm going to take this back to judo, right? A lot of people in judo around the world, not so many in the U.S., there's two ways that maybe you can be best. You can win the world championships. You can do what everybody else does, but be better than anybody else at. 
or you could do some things that nobody else is doing so they don't see you coming. Mm -hmm. And so nobody was going to these really remote areas. We didn't have to compete with IBM or Adobe or Microsoft because it was not big enough for them. A million dollars is nothing to those guys, right? But 100,000 here, 300,000 there, that was enough to keep us going and growing. So we went where nobody else was. That's very, very smart. Very smart. And um, I'm keen to ask you more about your time doing judo, how that was, and lessons that you took from judo into business and how your time doing judo was. In my case, when I was younger, I did a lot of karate, loved martial arts, got to black belt, and I was teaching and never got to levels like yours. But I loved it. I still do. I have some extremely fond memories. I learned so much during that time. It taught me so much about really about connecting with other people and so many lessons that I've been able to carry into, into the business world. How was that for you? How was your time doing judo and what have you taken from it to you the rest of your life? Yeah, the funny thing is I loved it. I mean, I had a great time and I had a great time just about every day. But unlike some of my friends, I don't do it that often anymore. And before everything got shut down, I would go teach once a week at a middle school in South Los Angeles. But most of the people I know who won the world championships, who are Olympic level athletes, that was their life, their whole life. And then they went on after they retired from competition. They opened their own judo school. They sold mats. They sold judo geese. I went and got a PhD and started a consulting company and was a professor. And then I started another company, another company. And for me, I love judo, but truly, I really enjoy programming more. And I've done both of them since I was quite young. I started judo when I was 12. I started writing code when I was 15. And the big thing I learned from judo that's really led forward is perseverance. And if it's true for math, like a lot of people say, well, I don't have a math brain or that's just bullshit. You know, everybody can get, you just don't give up. In one of my classes, I remember the professor told me not only did I get an A, but I was a standard deviation above the person who was number two in the class. So I was really good at statistics and still a point where I was taking a class where everybody else in the program had dropped by that point or, you know, like a couple people had babies. So they missed, you know, missed this term and a couple people bailed out. And anyway, it ended up, I was the only one still in the program at this point, like everybody else had fallen behind. So it was just me. And I had yeah. an independent study with the professor. And there were times I would read the textbook, get to the problems at the end and not be able to do them and have to read the chapter again. And I don't care how brilliant you are. I think this is thing people don't understand that no matter how smart you are, no matter how good at math you are, there are times when you just don't get it and you have to do it again. I was in our office one day and asked one of the developers how it's going. And he just shook his head and he just pounded pounded on his chair and said, the computer will not defeat me. (laughs) We all have those days, right? It's not that there's people now, like my daughter was in the UFC and the Olympics and stuff, and people would tell her, oh, your mom was so great, your mom was so great. I said, Miha, they don't, no, they don't, they're not telling you the truth. I went to practice and some days, it was it's nothing great. <laughs> but then you go again the next day, right? You go again the next day and you get better. And so I think that's the thing I learned is perseverance. You don't win a world championship by working really hard one day or even one year. It's year after year. It's the same thing with math. When kids say or adults say, well, I don't get math. It's usually just that at some point you missed part of it. 
somebody to do a combination and they don't know one of the two moves that goes into that, they're not going to be able to do it. I think that's part of it. And we talk about self-esteem and Judd Hirsch wrote a book on um, cultural competence, wrote a culture in the US. I, I, it wasn't, it, I didn't agree with everything he said, but one thing he said, I, I really believe. And he said, self-esteem doesn't come from some special patting kids on the back curriculum. It doesn't come from your mom. It comes from achieving a difficult task. And then you realize you can do hard things. And the next hard thing is not quite as hard because you know you can do it. It's the same way, whether it's getting a PhD, which takes a long time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's hard. And sometimes you have professors who are jerks, just like sometimes when you're training, you have a coach who's a jerk and Mm -hmm. you have to get past that. When you start a business, I think most people don't realize how long it takes to make a successful business. So yeah, yeah. You know, Spirit Lake Consulting, we hit a million dollars in 22 months. But by then, I had a doctorate, Eric had a doctorate, April was had been in accounting long enough to be the controller for the Spirit Lake Nation. We didn't just graduate from college. And when you hear they introduce somebody and say, yo, Bob and Jose is a serial entrepreneur. You know what that means? That means this isn't his first company. And sometimes those first two companies didn't make it. That's right. That's right. And there's so many lessons there. And not only in sort of failed ventures, but also professional experience and life experience, they all combine to making you a much more successful entrepreneur, I think. What is your view on that? I think being an entrepreneur is way harder than people think. It's kind of like the current equivalent of I'm in a band. When I was younger, people who weren't doing jack, you know, and they weren't going to college, and they were like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm in a band. You know, they got together with their friends, and they played in the basement. So true. I love this. Okay. <laughs> but I meet a lot of people. They say, oh, I'm doing a startup. Well, what are you doing? The next time you meet them, they're doing a different startup, but they've never actually made anything. There's a young man, I guess he's not so young anymore, Roman Matician. He was third in the world in ensemble wrestling. He's a really good judo player. But he also is an actor, a decent actor. And he says to me, I can't stand these people who say they're actors and they're working as a wait as in a wrestling. He goes, if you're working in a restaurant writing tables, you're a waiter. He says, I'm yeah. ready. You know what makes me an actor? Because I act in movies and they pay me. He yeah, said, I'm exactly. an Schwarzenegger. I'm not somebody super famous, but this is how I pay my rent. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, you running a startup is hard because you need to build something. You need to get customers. You need to get investors. You need to get employees. I think there's all those parts of it to go together. And just because, oh, my gosh, this is another thing from judo, okay? I was just talking to my youngest daughter about this the other day. When I did judo, there were people who were also very good judo players, maybe Olympic, world level, and they would parachute into town and they would do a clinic or seminar. And because we wanted our kids to benefit, me and my friends would organize everything and we would find a gym. We would make up flyers, advertise it, be there first thing in the morning, register everybody, make sure we had insurance, make sure that we had a medical person on staff just in case anybody got hurt, answer any questions when people called out, do all that stuff. So this person would fly in, they do their two-hour, two-day clinic, and they fly home. There's so much more to having an event than that. And it's the same way. There's so much more to having a business, whether it's a jiu-jitsu gym or a software company, than just being good at that thing. We have some really good developers in our country, in our company. We're very fortunate to have them. However, if it was just them, we wouldn't have a company. Exactly. And that's so often overlooked, especially when when people are thinking about transitioning into having their own company. They go, I'm really great at this one skill. 
therefore I should have a company doing that and forgetting or not realizing that there's so many additional skills that are required. I know I made that mistake in the past and I thought I was like, oh, my colleague and I were really great analytics consultants. We should start an analytics consulting company. And guess what? Like we almost went bankrupt four times in the first year or something like that. It was just, (laughs) there was everything else that we didn't know how to do and we had to learn it the hard way. Yeah, and you definitely undervalue that. That's so interesting. So tell me, how did the idea for Seven Generation Games come to you? What were you seeing in the market? What were you thinking about at the time? And how did the original idea come to fruition in your mind? You know, I had this idea for a very, very long time. And it's sort of where the hardware and software caught up with the idea that I had. So when I was in graduate school, I taught middle school math a school for children who were severely emotionally disturbed, kids who'd been in the gangs, kids who'd been expelled from their own school. Many of these kids had really severe problems. They had parents who had abused them and so on. So they didn't want to do anything. They were going to argue with every adult. They were going to get in a fight. And we had social workers and psychologists that were trying to help them work through their emotional problems. But I'm looking at that thinking, you're in the eighth grade. You can do fourth grade math. Even if you stop all of your problems and fighting and gangbanging and all of this, who's going to hire you? I got the idea I could make a computer program because the big thing is they were like rebelling against authority. It's hard to rebel against a computer, right? So I can make a computer program that would ask them questions, give them the right answer. If they got it wrong, what are they going to do, yell at the computer? So I did this. But if you think about the early 1980s, what you could do as far as graphics or computers, and they weren't every home and classroom. So I had this idea, but it really wasn't scalable. So I went and I got a dissertation where I did it on intelligence testing in the U.S. and Mexico. That was the thing where there was money at the time, was assessment, and kind of set that to the side. And I had, then my husband got sick and I had small children. So, you know, doing a startup when your husband who's, in the hospital, or then I was widowed and had three little kids was not a good plan. And so then there's two times when you're really in a good position to to do a startup. One is when you're young and you don't have any responsibilities, you don't have any kids to take care of, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have all this. And the other time that people think is when you're older and your kids are out on their own. You've paid a lot of those college tuitions and things like that. So it got to the point where it was kind of a perfect time where my kids were all out on their own except the youngest. We'd saved up enough for her college. And now the things you, you know, everybody had a computer or a smartphone and the things that you could do with them were the graphics capability and the performance was light years ahead of where it was in the 80s. And so applied to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which everyone says agriculture. Again, it goes for going where nobody else was going. They had a Uh, tiny little, tiny to USDA. I mean, they have a multi-billion dollar budget, right? But a tiny little pot of money. They gave out a few million dollars a year, you know, maybe 10 grants of 300,000 each at that time or something to rural youth development to address problems in rural areas. And so I said with my friend Eric, who's from Spirit Lake, kids... On the reservations, they're not doing very well in math. Let's develop a computer program to teach math. So I had the idea for a long time. This was an application of it. We developed the program. The kids who played our games improved their math scores three times as much as the kids who didn't. And they were from the same areas. So then we applied for another grant, but in between, we have no money, right? Like you said, I'm going bankrupt four four times. This is why I kept the jewelry group so I could keep paying my bills. And so Maria, who was 
another who came in as our chief marketing officer, and eventually she's one of the people that split off with me and formed Seven Generation Games. Maria said, let's do a Kickstarter. And so people then started writing us and saying, well, I have trouble getting my kid to do math. Is this only for Native American kids? And Maria, this is why she's the CEO now, said, do you have 10 bucks? Because if you do, this game is for you. And she said, I played Super Mario Brothers. I'm not an Italian plumber with a mustache. So we started an American Indian reservation in the middle of North Dakota, and now we're in almost every state and several countries, and that's how it's going. That is mind-blowing. Like, it's so, it's so fantastic. I love the fact that you look for unconventional ways to solve problems and achieve goals. And I also love the long-term vision and perseverance that you have for your goals. So having Seven Generation Games are a perfect example. So having the idea for something like that in the 80s and then starting it in 2012 and now sort of eight years in, it's a testament to your character and to your um, perseverance and leadership style, I would say. And I'm so impressed. Oh, I'm going to record that. That sounded really good. Next time people give me a hard time, I say, this is what Felipe said. What's up? <laughs> we can cut that bit of the clip. Yeah. <laughs> Make it a standalone one. No, that's fantastic. And when you first started, what did the company look like? And what were some of the stages of growth that you've had? Do you think about it in different stages, different levels? How has that journey been? Oh, my gosh. Well, we first started Seven Generation Games at the very, very beginning. That's when we split off from Spirit Lake. And it was me and my husband. So he's our CTO. He worked for a big company. He wanted to, to quit. He wanted to retire. And he'd been there since graduate school. And he kept saying, oh, I think I could retire when our daughter gets out of high college. And she was in elementary school at the time. And then he later says, you know, I'm not going to wait till she's out of college. I'm going to, as soon as I made the last tuition payment, I'm going to retire. So it keeps getting you know, closer and closer. So she's still in elementary school. And I finally said to him, you know what, Dennis, if you want to quit working there, just quit. We just retire, right? Yeah. And I had this idea. I want to start making games, but it's more than one person to do to make a math game, right? Because you need the game component, you need the educational component. You need a website where teachers can go download things, you need all this stuff. So I said, well, you pick what part you want to do and I'll do that. So he wanted to do the 3D programming. So I did the back end, the database, the data analysis, a lot of the educational parts with JavaScript and so forth. And yeah, so it was just the two of us. And oh my God, it's amazing. We're so married. I mean, I'm one of these people that wants to do everything. Like I try to do things way in advance. So it comes from being a single mom of three little kids and one of them's going to get chicken pox at the last minute. You can't leave things to the last minute. Dennis yeah. would do, you know, writing the last line of code at 5 a.m. and we're supposed to deliver it to a school at 8 a.m. And then we get there and things would work. And there were so many things that didn't work at first. I mean, those two schools that were our first two pilots, we have given them every game we ever made for free forever. And sometimes <laughs> will say to me, do we still need to give those people the, are all our games for free? And I'll say, yes. Yes, we do. Even this new one? Yes. And there are so many things that didn't work. But that's just the way it is. So yeah, it was Dennis and I, and then we hired a, an artist part-time, Justin, who um, was a friend of mine's son. He had been on the world team for judo, but he's a really good artist. And usual combination, right? And he did a yeah. lot of our artwork for years. So yeah, it was Dennis and I full-time, Justin part-time. Very shortly after that, Maria came in. She was thinking about going to graduate school to get an MBA. She worked for ESPN and she had been a sports writer. She was not even 30, probably not close to 30. 
But she married, graduated from NYU. She got um, Young Journalist of the Year. She had written for ESPN. She was working for, or she wrote, wrote for Sports Illustrated before that. She said, you know, I don't want to be, I, you know, this is it. I'm 30 years old. I'm just going to do this for the next 30 years. And she was thinking of going to either Harvard, which would not give her a scholarship. So she graduated owing like an, an incredible amount of money, like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Or she could have gone to Boston University for free, but, you know, done that for a couple of years. And I said, why do you want to do that? And she said, well, I want to get into startups. And I said, well, you know, we're doing this startup. Come in with us. You know, if it doesn't make it, you can always go to school, but you'll have startup experience. You won't owe anybody money. And I, frankly, if I was looking to hire somebody for a startup, I would look for somebody who had startup experience versus somebody in an MBA. So she yeah. came in and she started out as our chief marketing officer because she had been the social media columnist for ESPN. Like any basketball player, any famous athlete anywhere in the world said something stupid, it ended up in her column. Um, she was busy then. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So anyway, she was our chief marketing officer and we were in an accelerator about two years after we started the company. And they said, you need, you know, when people are pitching investors, a lot of investors, people are very high net worth. They used yeah. people catering to them. They might be somewhat abrasive mm. and you can't say, and the, the person who is heading up the accelerator looks at me because obviously they've met me by now. He says, you can't say, fuck you. I don't need your fucking money. And I think, not <laughs> it. And so that's how Maria became the CEO. That is great. And how did you work through the dynamic between you and Dennis where you're very prepared and he's very last minute? How did you work through that, I guess, mostly at the beginning? Well, there are a couple of things. I mean, one of it is my feeling is on your head be it, right? If I did my part of it. So one thing we did, I think, pretty well is separate. Like, I'm doing this part and you're doing that part. So oh, really? my part was done two days ago and you're working on your part till 5 a.m. To bed, I'm going to bed. Yep. And I think after enough of those times, that didn't happen. And the other thing we have always insisted, and this is a very brilliant thing on our part, I would say, everyone who works for our company, no matter what they do, has to at some point go into a classroom, go into a computer lab, and watch people use our software. And there is nothing more humbling than seeing the thing that you were, you did, that you thought was absolutely self-evident crap. Or there's a class of 20 kids and everyone's raising their hand and says, you're right, this. And the best example I give, Dad, so we did this game, Fish Lake, which is still one of our best games, I think. It teaches fractions. And there's part where you are going to the lake and you have to catch fish and you have to jump over all these snakes. And I kept telling this, that this game is too hard. I told him, I told other developers, this game is too hard. Our target market is middle school kids. And they're like, ah, you're old, you're playing games. This game is too hard. So we go to the school, this little girl comes up to Dennis's chest, maybe, and she walks up to him. She says, you, did you make this game? And he's like, oh, yes, yes, I did. She says, she starts poking him in the chest. What made you think this game was fun? This game was absolutely fun. I'll die 20 times. <laughs> see, see. So I think not too many brilliant software designs survive their first encounter with the user. And we don't, I think a thing we do right that a lot of companies don't, we don't separate our software staff completely from our users. You have to go in and you have to watch people play this. People who have no idea what you intended. Very true. That is the absolute best way to get feedback. Raw user feedback, watch people using your product. That's incredible. So you did a Kickstarter for the company and then... After that, at some point, you went and did Startup Chile. How was that journey in between? And then I'll ask you about Startup Chile. How, how do you found that? 
How was the journey in between? It was hard every day, I would say. You know, it's a little bit better now. Unlike a lot of companies, we entered this pandemic with a pretty good amount of money in the bank and a pretty good number of contracts. Right before everything went to hell, we had our two best months ever as far as sales. So that was good. And last year, I did not predict a pandemic, but I'm old enough to have seen enough cycles, right? And it seemed like things had been on the upswing for quite a while. And I talked to my co-founders and I said, I think things are going to go downhill. Let's try and lock up as many long-term contracts as we can. So we did that. But it's been tough because you know, when I think about if I had, say, in February, if we had the month that we had in February three years ago, we would have thrown a party. But now we've got the more you do, the more you're expected to do. So now we have a bigger payroll. Instead of just having cover at the very beginning, it was Dennis and I, and we had saved enough that we could get by basically forever if we lived frugally. So we didn't really have to think about, oh, we've got these other people that we're their sole sport. And now we've got four full-time employees in California. We've got another full-time employee in Minnesota. We've got another full-time employee in Chile. We've got a number of people that we subcontract with. Their contractors, we're a good part of their business. And so at least for those employees, if our company went under, it would be really, really difficult for them. Mm -hmm. So you think it's going to get to a point where you can just kind of relax and coast, but I haven't got to that point because the more money we make and the more contracts we get, then we have to bring in another employee and then our payroll goes up and then the more employees we get, we have to get a bigger space, we have to rent and then that goes up. So it's gotten from where I'm just worried about you know two months ahead to two years ahead. So that's a, it's gotten a little better, but for me, it's never gotten to a point where I could just relax and I'm just laying here in my pile of money that's all rolling in. Yeah, obviously, that's a dream, but I think it's much less common than what people think. I hear a lot of people talking about build your passive income and I'll show you how to build your passive income. And like, from my perspective, like there's no passive income. <laughs> you always have to be working your part off. So no, yeah, well done. And how, how did you end up getting into Startup Chile? How was that process? You know, I don't, somebody must have just forwarded it to me. Like I had never heard of it. Didn't know anybody right. who'd been in it. And I think somebody just forwarded me an email and I thought, that sounds pretty cool. I mean, I was a foreign exchange student. I lived in, in Japan for a year when I was a junior in college. Wow. And I thought, how many other chances are you going to get to go live in another country where it's not, like I felt like I couldn't just go move to another country because what about all the people who work for me? What about our investors, right? But here's a chance to move to another country and grow my company. And I decided, this is sort of my philosophy, my, is just say yes to things. Too many people don't do stuff because, oh, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? They'll figure it out. I just thought, how often am I going to get a chance to go to another country and expand, build another office? They're putting up the money. Yeah. They're making connections. They're giving me free rent. They're giving me money. Why would I not do this? Now, it turned out to be, I'm really glad I did it, but it turned out to be much more difficult mm -hmm. than I had anticipated. The big thing is, I would say to anybody thinking of going, if you don't speak Spanish, forget it. Yeah, uh, I agree. There were so many people that said to me, oh, it won't be a problem. English is the international language. Everybody speaks Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, right? And Startup Chile, I think it's a brilliant idea that Chilean government did, actually. 
Because what they did is they get people from all over the world to come there. Now, if you said to me, I want to pay you this amount of money to come to Chile and teach at the Universidad Católica, I would say, no, it's not enough money. But if you said, well, you can come here and we'll make all these connections. So I think, frankly, it's a much greater benefit to the Chilenos than it is to the people who are coming from out of the country. But that's oh, really? fine because it's tax money paying for it. Well, I'll give you an example. Several times, like there was somebody, a couple of people came up here. Like one guy, he's from, he's from Santiago, and he wanted to meet with investors. Well, I put him in touch with some people that I knew because I knew him. So when yeah. he was here, I set up some meetings for him. There was another guy who's from Chile who owns a company down there and they do, they're software developers. So they do contract. So again, I set up some meetings for him because I knew him. I would never have done that if I hadn't met those people. There was a guy that, um, from Argentina who was in startup Chile and I connected him up with an investor that I thought might invest. So I've, I've made several connections for people like that. You know, somebody that, and we hired somebody full time that we met in Startup Chile, and I was impressed with him. And I said, if your company doesn't make it, mm -hmm. I'd really like to hire you. And when they ran out of money, he messaged me. He said, did you mean that? I said, I sure did. And we sent him a contract and he's worked for us ever since. So it was a good experience for me in that we ended up hiring a few people as contractors. And we ended up hiring a few people, one person full time. We've had, a, so I've hired several people there. And Startup Chile was very helpful in making connections with some people who were really good. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely worth it. My Spanish is not as good as I would like it to be. But at least it's good enough to carry on a conversation, to read documents, to have a meeting. But it was really hard. I was educated 100% in the United States. My grandmother spoke Spanish. My aunts speak Spanish. But mostly when they're trying for stuff they don't want the kids to know or when they're mad. All the training they have at Startup Chile is in English and all the pitches are. But I think a lot of that is for the Chilenos to help them work on their English. But then once you go outside of that building, everybody you meet with practically is going to speak Spanish. And I don't care what they tell you. Like we had a meeting with at the U.S. Embassy. So mm -hmm. you think the U.S. Embassy is going to be in English, right? So I asked the trade, oh, she's wonderful too, the, the trade officer, whatever her official name is, person who's in charge of, of facilitating trade between the U.S. and Chile. She had the meeting, you know, when we're giving this presentation, you're inviting all these people to the U.S. Embassy, should it be in Spanish or English? And she said, oh, definitely Spanish. Because you're inviting, well, first of all, she said, this is their country. Yeah, great. So that's more respectful than you mm. expect everybody to speak English. And yeah. she said, secondly, a lot of people, maybe they had Spanish all the way through high school, or English all the way through high school. But she said, whatever you took in high school, do you remember? No. So yes, everything had to be in Spanish. And that was very difficult. I was really fortunate to hire a couple of people who were Chileno and who also, obviously, Spanish is perfect. So I would make sure they went with me to meetings. And so sometimes I could give a talk that I had really, really worked on. But then mm. if there were any questions, Maria Paz or Daniel could pop up and say, well, actually, it was a good experience. I learned a lot. One of the things that's really helped us now, funny enough, is oh, you must know where Tome is, right? Down, down by Concepcion, and then you go up, there's these micro schools, like tiny little one-room schoolhouses in the mountains. Yes. Well, that was one of the places that we tested our games, and they had no internet. 
Well, now there's lots of people in remote areas in the United States that all of a sudden their kids are learning at home because they shut the schools down and they have no internet. So those games we developed for Tomei Chile are now that same technology is being used on the Spirit Lake Nation and the Standing Rock Reservation. And so it worked out. Things work out in unexpected ways. Right. That's incredible. I'm so glad I asked. I love that story. As you know, I've been in Australia a long time and I married an Australian. And when we have gone to Chile to see my family or we speak with them over a video online, my very extended family, like lots and lots of people, I reckon there's two that have tried to speak with my wife and they rarely make it past, hello, how are you? And as, as soon as they say that, the rest of my family just teases them like, woo, you can... <laughs> The amount of, of English that a lot of people expect, but it's definitely improving, definitely improving over time. That's really great. I am going to be respectful of your time, just looking looking at the clock, but I do want to ask you, what's next for Seven Generation Games? Where would you like to see it going? And yeah, what is your vision and what's coming up? Well, what I really like, if I could have everything I wanted in the world, yep. I would really love to see us in more places outside the U.S. You know, we've been talking to, I was in Trinidad and Tobago a while ago when we were at some schools there. We've been talking to a school in the Dominican, but I really think that there's a huge need for education for children in, in areas where it's not cost effective for Silicon Valley. So that's what I'd yeah. really like. I don't know how to get from here to there. We're kind of in that direction. We're working with a lot of lower income communities in the United States. And that's why we've deliberately decided to develop for low end devices, things that run on Android phones. I mean, I have an Oculus Quest and I love it, but that's not going to be accessible to a child in Tomei or in, or in Chile or in um, San Pedro de Atama. It's just not. So that's what I really like if I had all the money in the world and everything. Right now, I think we're just pushing to get, like everybody is, at least in the U.S., is to help people as much as we can right now. Because Maria, who's our CEO, was saying that when I talked this morning for the Department of Education, if you had told people in January, oh, yeah, we're going to just... The last quarter of school, we're just going to do the last three months online, and we're going to give everybody two days to do it. And all the kids are going to go home, and people would have laughed at you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But now we're doing it. So right now, it's just as much as we possibly can, trying to support teachers and parents. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of teachers who are fifth, sixth grade teachers, and they're very good at teaching math or English or whatever, are saying, I didn't sign up for this. I don't know how to run web meetings and set up a website and do any of this. I signed up to teach English to fifth graders. I'm very good at it, by God. And now here we are. And parents, you know, even like my daughter has three children. She's bilingual. She's way more proficient than me in Spanish because she actually took classes in it all the way through high school and college and lived in Costa Rica and lived in Spain and came to Chile for a few months. And she, you know, has... Runs a technology company, all this stuff. And yet she has three children. So Mm. it's like running a one-room schoolhouse in your house while you're doing your full-time job. Instead, people say, oh, it's like that old um, software comic that's like riding a, oh, learning the software is like riding a bike. If you were on fire and the bike was on fire and you were in hell. So that's, I don't (laughs) know. Oh, that's so true. I love that. 
I love the work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much for all the effort, all the good work. Of course, please keep going. We definitely need more, more of seven generation games in the world. So thank you for doing that, that good work. Well, if anybody wants the games are at sevengenerationgames.com and we made everything free while the schools are closed because we figured it was the least we could do. So if um, people want to go check them out, we have a couple of games that teach statistics, the very basic statistics like distribution and frequencies and stuff. You want to learn how the Maya use statistics and avoid getting speared by villagers. There you go. That's fantastic. We'll include the links on the show notes. And Maria, thank you so much for your time. This was absolutely wonderful. Uh, thank you, you so much. Nice to talk to you. I don't run into too many people from Chile who aren't from our company anymore. So. Oh, that was excellent. Thank you so much. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.